Well, please take a seat. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus, that your son uh, came into this world as one of us. And as we spend our time this morning thinking about these things and the other truths as well concerning Jesus, we pray, Father, bless me as I bless us all as we listen, that we might all rejoice more in Jesus and give thanks to you for him. In his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, folks, we're returning to the letter of First Timothy once again, and we're just looking at one verse of the letter this morning. It's chapter 3 and verse 16, and if you can have that open in front of you, that would be great. Thank you. Hopefully you remember from two weeks ago that Paul has inserted this very short paragraph right in the very middle of this letter to Timothy. And the whole of the letter is all about how Timothy can lead the church in Ephesus and do so well. How to maintain good doctrine. How to maintain sound worship and healthy leadership in the life of the church and so forth. And then there is this little section right in the middle of the letter, which is there to remind Timothy why all of these other things are so important. It's there to explain to Timothy, firstly, what the church is, and then secondly, what the church believes. What the church is and what the church believes. And you recall that Paul has used these three statements in verse 15 to describe what the church is. The church is the household of God. The church of the living God. And a and buttress of the truth. That's what we looked at last time in this series. And now in verse 16, Paul turns to the second half of this paragraph, which is about what the church believes. What does the church believe? And you could answer that in a a number of ways, couldn't you, if someone was to ask you that question. You might say, well, the church believes the Bible. Or the church believes the gospel. Or uh, the church believes in Jesus. And all of those would be good ways to answer that question. But I want you to see here that Paul uses this uh, unusual phrase, doesn't he? To describe what the church believes. He calls it the mystery of Godliness, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, whenever Paul uses that word mystery, he doesn't use it in quite the same way that we normally use that word mystery. 
When we use that word, we normally mean something that we just cannot understand. Something for which there is no adequate explanation. That's not what Paul means when he uses this word mystery. Rather, what he means is this. Truths which in the past were hidden, but which God has now revealed to us through Jesus. That's what to think when you come across this word mystery in the Bible. Truths which in the past were hidden, but which God has now revealed to us through Jesus. And why does Paul call it the, the mystery of godliness? Well, simply because these truths that have been revealed in Jesus are life-changing truths. It's practical truth. It's not merely theoretical. When, through God's work in a person's life, that person learns and believes these truths about Jesus, it transforms them as a person. It stimulates their worship of God. It leads them into new obedience to God. It humbles them before God. And you see, knowing Jesus, knowing the truth that has been revealed in Jesus, is what changes lives. It's what makes godliness possible for us. So what is this mystery of godliness? What are these truths which in the past were hidden but have now been revealed to us through Jesus, which if we embrace them will lead us into a life of godliness? Well, to sum up this mystery of godliness, Paul does a a copy and paste job. He borrows a, a few lines from perhaps a, a Christian hymn from those days, or maybe a very early Christian creed. We don't know exactly where Paul gets these words from, but clearly it was a way in which the early church summed up what they believe about Jesus. And Paul doesn't give us the whole hymn or creed here, he, he just takes six lines from it. And he writes, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I think the best way for us to handle these six lines is to see that they are actually three sets of two. So lines one and two belong together, lines three and four, and lines five and six. And if you divide up these words like that, you see that each couplet has what you might describe as an earthly side and a heavenly side to it. So let's take these six lines two by two, a bit like Noah's Ark, and uh, let's see what they have to say to us this morning. The first two lines focus on the revelation of Christ. The revelation of Christ. Just three days to go till Christmas, isn't it, of course? And uh, I hope you're just about ready for Christmas. I hope you've got all the shopping done. 
I hope you've got all the cards written, all the plans made, and all the rest of it. And it's appropriate, therefore, that at this time of year, and on this Sunday in particular, we come to these lines because Paul, you notice, begins with the story of Christmas. In God's providence, we're slotting into Christmas season very comfortably with this sermon series. Paul sums up the heart of the Christmas story with these words. He says, he, that is Christ, was manifested in the flesh. And he's talking about the wonder of the Christmas story, the miracle of the incarnation. That forever and ever and for all eternity, God the Son had existed as fully God with his Father, with the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity. He's fully God. And then 2,000 years ago, something amazing happened. And that is that God the Son came down into this world. I wonder if you're expecting visitors over Christmas time. I'm sure many of you are. Maybe friends or family coming and and traveling to visit you and maybe stay with you over the holiday season. It's a time of year, isn't it, when we do a lot of visiting of friends and relatives. And you see, Paul is saying, really Christmas is all about this greatest visit that has ever taken place. God visited earth. God the Son took to himself a human nature, body and soul. And he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary through the work of the Holy Spirit. And as the angel Gabriel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In Matthew's account, we read this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In John's prologue, he says, the word, that is the eternal son of God, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Paul says elsewhere, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It is what we celebrate and remember, particularly at Christmas time, isn't it? Amidst all the food and all the presents, all the parties, all the busyness. Don't miss this great mystery that Paul is reminding us of this morning. This is what it is all about, ultimately. This amazing miracle of the incarnation. Jesus, God the Son, was manifested in the flesh. God the Son became a human being. And he stepped down into our world so that we could meet him. And so that we could know him. C.S. Lewis captured it so well when he wrote 
once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. This, you see, is the revelation of Christ. He was manifested in the flesh. And of course, that's only the beginning of the story, isn't it? This baby grew up into a young man and, well, what a life he lived. He said the kind of things that only God can say. He forgave people their sins. He claimed to be eternal. He said that he is the only way to heaven. He claimed to be the answer to death itself. He said the kind of things that only God can rightly say. And not only that, but also he did the kind of things that only God can do. Healed the sick. He raised the dead. He provided food miraculously. He walked on water. He could utter a few words and nature itself would stand still, obedient to his word. And then, of course, in his early 30s, he was arrested. He was condemned to death. He was executed by crucifixion and then was laid in a tomb. And then for three days, as it were, a huge question mark hung over the tomb in which the body of Jesus lay. What now of all those things that he'd said? What now of all those amazing things that he had done? What now of this notion that he is in fact God incarnate, come into the world in order to be our saviour? We had thought that he was the one who would redeem Israel, his disciples said. And that question mark was removed early in the morning on the first Easter day. That's what Paul is talking about in the second line of this first couplet when he says that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus now. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And the resurrection, you see, is the vindication of Jesus. And when God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, he was declaring to the world that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And this then is how Christ is revealed to us. He was revealed to us when, in the incarnation, he was manifested in the flesh. And then furthermore, he was revealed to us in the resurrection when he was vindicated by the Spirit and declared to be the Son of God. I wonder what do you make of this revelation of Christ? Uh, do you believe what both the incarnation and the resurrection, Christmas and Easter, have to say to us that Jesus is indeed God the Son? And that brings us to the, the second of these three couplets, lines three and four. We've seen the revelation of Christ. Now let's notice the witnesses of Christ. And if Christ is revealed to the world, both by his incarnation and his resurrection, 
Who are those who come to witness that revelation of Christ? Well, firstly, Paul says he was seen by angels. As you read the Gospels, I wonder if you ever notice the, the angels just keep popping up time and time again, don't they? Particularly at the, the key moments in the story. As we've already been reminded, the angels were there to announce the coming birth of Jesus. Announcing that both to Mary and to Joseph. And of course, the angels were there nine months later as well at the birth of Jesus. The shepherds were out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around. The the shepherds were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels were there, they were present at his birth. But of course, that's not all that the angels saw of Jesus. Now, all through his life, the angels were never far away from him. They saw it all. After Christ's temptation, we read the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. In Gethsemane, as Jesus sweat drops of blood trembling at the the prospect of the cross, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Angels saw a resurrection as well, of course. They sat at his empty tomb and they spoke to some of the visitors at that tomb that morning. They were there at the ascension as well, comforting the disciples as Jesus ascended to heaven. And still now, today, the angels see Jesus in glory. They're singing to him, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The angels see him still. And when Jesus returns to this earth again, whenever that will be, the angels will not miss out on that either. They will see it for themselves, as will we. Jesus will return with his angels. The angels have seen it all, haven't they? They witnessed how Jesus was manifested in the flesh at his incarnation. And how he was vindicated by the spirit in his resurrection. And they saw everything in between as well. And they've seen everything since then as well. As someone has put it, the angels just could not get enough of Jesus. And they never will. Peter says, these are things into which angels long to look. And Paul very simply says here, Jesus was seen by angels. 
They are the witnesses of Christ. And maybe you think to yourself, well, wouldn't it be amazing to have that kind of angelic vantage point so that you yourself could witness the revelation of Christ in his incarnation and in his resurrection and everything in between, just like the angels saw. Wouldn't it be amazing to hover in the sky over the little town of Bethlehem like the angels did on the night when Jesus was born? Wouldn't it be amazing to go into the empty tomb on the first Easter morning like the angels did and sit down on the the stone where the body of Jesus had been laid and sit there with the, the empty grave clothes still sitting there in a pile neatly folded up next to you. You could see them for yourself. Just imagine seeing what the angels saw. And of course we can't do that, can we? We can't travel back in time. We can't see these things with our own eyes, just like the angels did. It all happened 2,000 years ago and 2,000 miles away. And yet in another way, we can still witness, as it were, these things. And that's what Paul turns to next, isn't it? In the second half of this second couplet, he says, Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. And so how do we today come to witness the things that the angels themselves saw? And Paul is saying here, it's through the proclamation of the gospel. As the gospel is proclaimed among the nations. That's how we come to witness these things the angels saw. When the risen Jesus was with his disciples in Luke 24, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Proclaimed among the nations. And it's been the story of the church ever since, hasn't it? Simply Jesus is proclaimed among the nations. And he is so in order that those who lived in a different time or at a different place or both, and who therefore weren't able to see with their eyes what the angels saw, can still learn of it through the proclamation of the gospel. That Jesus, God the Son, who was manifested in the flesh, died for sin, three days later rose again from the dead, vindicated by the Spirit. And everyone who turns away from their sin and turns to him in faith will therefore be forgiven, reconciled to God, and given eternal life with him as a free gift. And you see, here we are this morning, and these words of Paul that he wrote all those years ago, They're coming true even this morning in our service, aren't they? That what the angels saw at the first Christmas and the first Easter and everything between, these things are now proclaimed among the nations, even here. And that brings us then to the the third and the final couplet, lines five and six, which speak then of the, the reception of Christ. So again, follow the logic here in in this hymn or creed. If Christ was revealed to us through his his incarnation and his resurrection, 
And if these things were witnessed by the angels who saw them and heard by the nations as they were proclaimed in the gospel going out to the nations, well, the only question that remains is how will people respond to these things? How will Christ be received? And again, Paul looks at it from two angles, doesn't he? Firstly, he looks at it from the earthly perspective. He says, Christ was believed on in the world. In other words, it's not just the case that Christ was proclaimed among the nations, but as well as that, people, as they heard that proclamation of him, believed on him. Now, most of us here this morning fit that category, don't we? That is, these things of Christ that are revealed to us in his incarnation and his resurrection, and which were seen by angels and proclaimed by the church ever since. We believe them. We believe in Jesus. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? At this time of year, we often reflect on those amazing words in John chapter 1, John's prologue to his gospel. And he writes this, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Through coming to believe in Jesus, we're not only forgiven by God of everything forever, but even more than that, we're adopted into his family. As Paul has just said in the previous verse, we're made members of the household of God. We're adopted as his children. We receive his fatherly love and care forevermore through believing in Jesus. Let me ask you, what have you done with Jesus? And you've heard this morning, haven't you, this great mystery of godliness. These truths which in the past were hidden but now have been revealed to us by God through Jesus. This great mystery of, of how his eternal son was manifested in the flesh at the first Christmas. How he came to live amongst us as God with us. How he died for sinners and three days later rose again from the dead, vindicated by the spirit, declared to be the son of God. I wonder what do you make of it all? Do you believe that Jesus is indeed the son of God? How will you respond to these things? Will you be one of those to whom Paul refers in this verse when he says that Jesus Christ was believed on in the world? The carol puts it well, doesn't it? How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming. But in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. But it has to be said there is far more to the reception of Christ than just the fact that he is believed on in the world. Wonderful though that is, as people hear the proclamation of the gospel and believe on Jesus throughout the world. Remember, there is a heavenly side to the reception of Jesus as well. And that's what the final line points us to. 
Paul says, Christ was taken up in glory. And Paul's here referring to the ascension of Jesus. And this time of year, we spend a lot of time thinking about the birth of Jesus and how he was laid in a manger. And yet the last line of this hymn reminds us that he's not in the manger anymore. He went from the manger to the cross, from the cross to the tomb. He walked out of the tomb alive and well on the first Easter Sunday. And then a few weeks later, he ascended to heaven. That is, he was taken up in glory. Heaven received him. Paul writes elsewhere, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what a reception that must have been. If the angels burst out with praise when Jesus was born as a baby. Oh, we can hardly begin to imagine, can we, what it was like when eventually he returned to heaven 33 years later. And did so as the risen, exalted, conquering king received in heaven. And this, you see, is the mystery of godliness. This is what the church believes. That Christ Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the spirit. Seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. And taken up in glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you our praise and thanksgiving for these wonderful truths about Jesus that have now been revealed to us, that he is your eternal son, and he came into this world as one of us, and he died for our sin before rising again, declared to be the son of God. And we thank you that the things that the angels saw of Christ when he was born and when he walked the earth and when he rose from the dead, all those things the angels saw for themselves, we have come to know ourselves through the proclamation of the gospel among the nations. And we thank you that Jesus is now ascended to heaven. He has been taken up and received in glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And just as heaven has received him, may we all do so likewise, coming to him in repentance and faith, so that we might know him and live with him now and forevermore. And in his precious name, we ask all of these things. Amen.